This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, I'm Michael Shorten, also known as Chicago Wiz, and welcome to episode 30, where we're going to talk a little bit about some of the odds and ends from AD&D combat that I've had to deal with, as well as a correction to a previous episode on charging, and I'm going to lightly touch on that dreaded topic, weapons versus armor class. So let's get started. One of the things I really love about AD&D is that after 40-odd years, I'm still learning about the game and still growing. In my last episode where I covered AD&D combat and charging, I told you that the way I handle initiative if somebody has set to receive a charge with a pointy weapon in order to allow the charging person to impale themselves upon it, is that the person that set the weapon would automatically get initiative. I base that off of the following example from the Dungeon Master's Guide on page 66. Let me read this example to you. Example. Character A sets her spear with its butt firmly braced upon the floor just as a giant toad hops at her, attacking. If the spear impales the creature, it will score double-indicated damage. Note that in this case, initiative is automatically given to the set spear as it will obviously take effect prior to any attack routine of the toad, and that two dice are not rolled, but the result of the d8 damage roll is multiplied by two. Now, I had read that example and had taken it to mean that in the case of setting for charge, the person uh, setting the weapon would automatically get initiative. And there was a question on one of the Facebook AD&D forums about charging, and gentleman and I uh, exchanged some pleasantries over that. And you know, he said, well, no, it's still weapon speed. Where did you get this from? And so I went back and looked, and you know... I kind of feel like I got it wrong here, and, and that's, I guess, both the beauty and possibly, for some people, the frustration of AD&D, is that there are some things that you have to kind of parse out or tease out. And thinking about it, I have to agree that, you know, I think I'm convinced that I had it wrong. I think that no matter whether someone is set to receive a charge with an appropriate weapon or not, it would be the length of the weapon of the charger versus the defender that determines who's going to go first. And, and it kind of makes sense. You know, if somebody's charging with a pike and I've got a short spear set, it would make sense that the charger would get the first attack. However, it still does mean that if I score a hit, having set to receive the attack, that then they would get the double damage. So I'm going to go with that. And what do you think? You think I got it right this time? How would you handle it? 
So we've come to the road on covering a lot of the bits of a D&D combat that people have typically found confusing or have expressed confusion or skepticism over. But I wanted to talk about a couple of bits that I ran into while running combat or while uh, dealing with uh, different things. The first is, how do you handle creatures with natural attacks if you have tied initiative and you're dealing with weapon speed? So remember that the only time that you really care about weapon speed is one of two cases. When initiative is tied, whenever you know, both parties have rolled, say, a four, or when you are in melee with a spellcaster and you're trying to determine does the spell get off before the weapon blow can possibly hit. So we tie initiative, say, with that aforementioned toad that uh, was going to attack would how do you figure out the weapon speed for a toad well in this case the rules actually cover that on the dungeon master guide in page 66 and it says and i quote when opponents in melee have tied for initiative blows attack routines included occur simultaneously except when both opponents are using weapons well, then that answers your question. A toad's not using a weapon per se. It has natural attacks. It's got, you know, it's, it's bite attack. So the way I read that is you don't care about the weapon speed for a monster that's using something like claws or a bite or, or what have you, since both uh, both parties are not using weapons, then both blows are counted or both melee uh, attacks are counted as simultaneous. And so, you know, the, the results would apply to both. It's only when you both have weapons. So if for some reason I wasn't facing that toad, I was facing, say, a bugbear with a polearm, then I would care about my weapon speed versus the bugbear's weapon speed. Another bit, falling back. Now, you've probably heard this expressed as a fighting withdrawal or a retreat with your weapons or retreat in good order, retreat with weapons, what have you. But it's the idea that there are two ways you can get out of combat. One is just to turn around and run away, also known as getting your ass out of there. Uh, and of course, we know how to deal with that when someone is retreating, then those that are nearby, otherwise engaged in melee with that person, may get an attack of opportunity. What's interesting is that in the player's handbook, falling back is mentioned in an option as an option. If you turn to page 104 in your player's handbook, under the section melee combat that second paragraph there says participants in a melee can opt to attack parry fall back or flee and you know it talks about attacking is by weapon bare hands or grappling parry disallows any return attack that round but the strength to hit bonus is subtracted from the opponents to hit dice so the character is less likely to be hit Falling back is a retrograde movement facing the opponents and can be used in conjunction with a parry, parry, an opponent 
creatures are able to follow if not otherwise engaged. That sounds like a fighting withdrawal, right? Here's the interesting thing. The Dungeon Master's Guide does not cover that at all. It goes into some length about talking about fleeing, but it never mentions the fighting withdrawal. So if anyone ever gives you a hard time about the fighting withdrawal, well, yes, it is in the Player's Handbook. And yes, I do allow my players to use it. However, I think I am going to remind them about the parry option if they have, um, they have the strength bonus so that way they can use that. Now, in a melee situation where you have a lot of creatures versus a lot of players, remember that in a melee combat is random of who strikes who, because the idea is you're not sitting there having a duel with one person, you know, you're hacking left and right and you're engaged with whoever else is within range. I may roll randomly to see what the monster's reaction might be if and when a player does do a fighting withdrawal. Missile fire. What's interesting about missile fire is it goes into great length about talking about when you can take the shot, but in AD&D, Bowman can take two shots. So when does that second shot go off? I've, there's nothing that describes that in the DMG, so I've taken a house rule to say that the second shot goes off at the end of the round or when everyone else has completed their activities, barring any sort of real long spell that might be being cast. Also, I mentioned about the randomness of a melee. You know, a lot of people think, well, when I get into this melee, I'm going to focus on one, one target. Or when the monsters get in the melee, they're only going to focus on one player character. If there's multiple opponents versus multiple opponents, it really truly is random. And I'm talking about within melee range. So you kind of have to picture in your head the battle, or if you're using miniatures, this may end up being a little bit easier to figure out. If it's multiple versus multiple, the target's going to be random for both sides. In the case of one versus multiple, then that one character will, you know, attack or land the blows, if you will, against a random opponent, but obviously the opponents would be focused on the one person. And it is something that sometimes gets overlooked. Another bit that I've had to run into is what about sleeping or held or helpless opponents? My players love to use the Entangle. They love to use Web because that is a good chance of you know, freezing a bunch of opponents in place, which they may then want to kill. How do you handle that? Well, the Dungeon Master's Guide does mention that for those types of opponents, you actually get two times the attack rates, and if you land a blow, you get maximum damage on each attack. You also get the plus four for immobilized or prone. So really, you got a really good chance of hitting and, and doing some serious damage to someone uh, if they're immobilized. The Dungeon Master's Guide does also go on to mention that if you are not in combat and there is a sleeping held or helpless opponent, it only takes one round to kill them. So moral of the story is, drag all of those prisoners and enemies to the back or move combat away and then you're golden. You don't have to worry about rolling to hit. 
And that's about it for AD&D combat. Oh, but we have one topic left, don't we? What about weapons versus armor class? The idea of weapons versus armor class is that certain weapons do better against certain armors than others. And this concept goes back to chainmail. The old miniature wargaming rule set that Gary and the late Geneva folks were using for their medieval and historical combats, and in which they started incorporating role-playing into those games, and then ultimately that, you know, beget OD&D and so on. Chainmail's man-to-man rules had this concept where it took different hit values based on an attacker's weapon and the defender's armor. So you would roll 2d6 to see if you hit your defender, and depending on your weapon type and their armor type, you might need to roll a 7, you might need to roll a 10 or a 12 or what have you. What's interesting is that this isn't carried over into the OD&D original books for the alternative combat system. So in the 1974-3 uh, books, it espoused either using chainmail rules or it said, here, here's a little alternative combat system with a D20 and it gave birth to the you know D20 system that we're all familiar with in, in adjudicating combat. But it didn't actually include anything about the different types of weapon versus the different armors. That appeared later in Supplement 1, which is called Greyhawk. And it that book gave a nod to the hand-to-hand combat rules from Chainmail. And if you look at the chart that's there, it looks pretty much derived from how Chainmail did it. Is really not much more about it on there. Nothing that, you know, yes, you should use this. It was more of a, if you want to include this in your campaign. And I got to tell you, Gary must have really fallen out of love with this by the time he wrote Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, because there's only a brief note in the Dungeon Master's Guide on page 28 about using it, that, oh, if you want to include this in your campaign, you can. But here, we're going to go on and talk about other things. And there is absolutely nothing about this in combat procedures. And the combat procedures lays out pretty much all of the bonuses and penalties and things to think about. So it's interesting that, you know, they went into great detail about weapon speed and weapon length, but nothing about the weapon versus armor class. In fact, the most detail that's given about this option is actually in the player's handbook with a chart on page 38, which looks really close to the chart that was laid out in OD&D Supplement 1. Beyond that, crickets. Now, I'm going to admit here, I do not know if Unearthed Arcana had that. I probably should go look, but listeners already know that I have a reluctance for opening up our Nurse Arcana simply because I just haven't seen a need for it. And I really haven't been very curious about it, although I, I must admit I'm starting to get curious now about some uh, topics in combat. So 
it's really interesting that Gary kind of gave a nod to it, but then he didn't. Now, there is one note about using this uh, approach, and I'll read the note from the Dungeon Master's Guide. If you allow weapon-type adjustments in your campaign, please be certain to remember that these adjustments are for weapons versus specific types of armor, not not necessarily against the actual armor class. But if you go and look at that chart in the player's handbook, it lists things by armor class and not necessarily by armor types. Now, what are we talking about here? So my, let's say I'm wearing chain and shield armor class four. Well, that may not be the final armor class. If I have a good dexterity, my armor class may be three or two. If I have a particularly bad dexterity, then my armor class may be five or six. So the note here is, what is the original armor class, armor class four, and then what is the armor class after you take uh, the dexterity bonuses into account? So what does that mean for someone that's using weapon versus armor class? That means that when they go to attack a a opponent, they would need to know what the armor class is so they could take into account the appropriate, uh, um, the appropriate, uh, bonus or penalty for their weapon. And I'm talking about the original armor class for the armor that they're using. And then you would have to turn around and know what is the actual real armor class, including all bonuses and penalties, to actually figure out the final to roll value that they would need to beat. Whew. You know, it's no wonder people dropped using that uh, adjustment from the game. I have to admit, it's not something that I felt yet that I want to add to my game, But there is this teeny tiny part of me that wonders, what would it be like? So I may try it sometime just as an experiment, maybe a one-shot. I don't know. We'll see. I've never been one that feels drawn to uber-realism, and I have a feeling that that's what weapons versus armor class really would appeal to if you have a desire of that, yes, a dagger would work well versus this armor, but wouldn't work well versus a shield, let's say. So your mileage may vary. If you do use weapon versus armor class, I'd love to know how it works, how you actually adjudicate it, and how you, you know, communicate to your players the armor classes and the various things so that they know whether they hit or not. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I've pretty much gone through everything I wanted to cover with these deep dives into simplifying AD&D combat, and I really appreciate the feedback that I've gotten from you all about how this has helped or hasn't helped. I've gotten a couple of comments that I want to address later on, but I am out of time now. In our next episode, episode 31, I'm going to visit my other D&D love, and that is Original D&D, also known as OD&D. And I'm going to talk about the two OD&D games that I'm currently running, one being the solo one-on-one game with my wife, and the other one being a game based on the old Ultima computer role-playing game setting. Also, have a bit of news for you if you like AD&D podcasts. 
You may be interested to know that Eric Tankar of Tankar's Tavern is starting a new AD&D podcast with two friends of his, and he's calling it Unearthed Arcana. Now, you can get more details about this podcast, when it's going to start and who's in it, if you visit one of Eric's many social media outlets. I think it's great. I have absolutely no problem with many AD&D podcasts coming on. I think the more the merrier, because I think that the more we have, the more that we learn from each other, then the more that we can continue bringing out what a great game this is and helping to share our love of it. So give it a listen if you're so inclined. And who knows, maybe we'll all get together sometime and have a big old talk or maybe just have a big old game, you know? As always, I want to thank you all for listening and for your comments. You can always leave me a message about any questions you have or what you think. I'll leave the appropriate links in my show notes. So until next time, game on.